Welcome to Super Sentai Buddies. This is episode 12 of The Spider-Man Who Loved Me, a podcast dedicated to the Toei production of Spider-Man. Every so often, we watch an episode of the show and we share our thoughts with you, the listener. My name is producer Mark. With me, as always, is my co-host and buddy, Brian. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine, as today is 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> it is 11 o'clock at night, that's true. Also with me, not as always, but for a one-time special, are my co-hosts and buddies, Meg and Lucas, rounding out the panel of the Mount Olympus podcast. How are you guys? Hi, good. Doing all right? It is 11 o'clock <laughs> here also. We yes. just finished recording an episode of... Mount Olympus, specifically mm-hmm. a Xena episode, and we are all recording this intro together. We are not all recording this full episode together. In point of fact, Brian and I discussed, watched and discussed episode 12 some time ago. In fact, in mid-March. And it was just as uh, quarantine was starting in a lot of states, including in Pennsylvania. And you're going to hear that episode, listener, as soon as we're done with a five-star segment like usual. But when I sat down to edit it recently to get it into shape, I'll be honest, we were a little glib about things. We were we took the quarantine very seriously, but it was week one. It kind of felt like a vacation, and it was just a weirdly lighthearted tone. That's probably the wrong tone to strike uh, these uh, April, May, June, July, four, four months or so later. It just as the guy who edits this program, listening back to younger, more naive us, it just landed wrong here in July. (laughs) So here we are on the back of a Mount Olympus, along with Megan Lucas, who record that podcast, to do a new version of the five stars. (laughs) So thanks, Megan Lucas, for joining us for this redo. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Yeah, (laughs) we will be very glib about something else. So today we are going to watch episode 12. Guys, Megan Lucas, you're going to love this because this is the first time you're going to hear the title of this show. And Spider-Man has excellent episode titles. (laughs) Episode 12 is called Becoming Splendid, The Murderous Machine of Transformation. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) It's great. And so many of them are like... They've just, there was an episode a few weeks ago called To Flaming Hell, See the Tears of the Snake Woman. Oh, that's so good. Wow. It's fantastic. <laughs> One of them was called the fearful hit song, Dancing Murder Rock and Roll. That that still may be my favorite episode of the series so far. <laughs> Dancing Murder Rock and Roll. They killed a whole band in their band van. Yeah, it's wow. not it's not like normal Power Rangers where like, The band is unconscious, and they come back and thank the Power Rangers at the end. No, that band is dead. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) So we are we're gonna we're gonna talk about this honestly really fun episode, the murderous machine transformation. But before we get there, Brian and Meg and Lucas shining in the heavens. There are as always five stars. And like we do when Brian and I host this podcast, except for last time where we made bad decisions, (laughs) we don't talk about contemporary things because we don't know when these episodes will drop. Please see the first three minutes of this podcast. Yep. We have officially learned our lesson because the one and only time we broke from that tradition, uh, it has caused us to record an episode on uh, Monday or Sunday night. So... (laughs) 
So what we like to do is a top five because it's a topic that will just stay kind of uh, timeless for whatever this episode does drop. So today we're going to approach our top five and bottom five, in fact, what I call page to screen adaptation. So these are each of our favorite and least favorite graphic novels, novels, what have you, that have been adapted into a television show or a film. So would you guys like to hear the first star of the week? Yes. yes That's the I format. Would. I have to say it that way. I mean, you don't get a choice. <laughs> if you said no, I guess the intro would just end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right then. Move it on. <laughs> it would still be a better intro than the first time we recorded an intro for this episode. <laughs> so the first star of the week is a film that I've talked about on our own podcast several times. It's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you guys. Mm-hmm. One of my three favorite movies of all time, certainly one of the movies, like if you rank the movies that I have watched the most, mm-hmm. that would be right near the top. Incredibly fun music, really sort of imaginative sets, and just like a performance of the ages uh, by Gene Wilder as the titular Willy Wonka. I love that mm-hmm. movie. So it is it is still a big comfort movie for me. When I'm in a bad mood, it's one of the ones I will put on to make myself feel better. So that is my number one. That is my favorite. And mm-hmm. we'll go favorite, least favorite, until I think we get to our group star, our number five. And we'll save our most favorite for, we'll go, we'll put it in the opposite order then, just so we're not talking about the worst movie as the very last thing. <laughs> right. I, I presume uh, we are saying that now because you started off with best and realized halfway through that, oh, no, we're going to have to flip this. Yeah, that's about right. Fair enough. Uh, I could have restarted or I could have edited it to make it sound like I did it in the other order. But both of those are too much work. It's already yep. 11 o'clock and I'm doing this intro for the second time. Yeah. OK, so. So my least favorite movie and Brian pointed this out and I almost had to go with this. Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's going to get an honorable mention. Because yeah. that's a garbage adaptation, and you don't mess with perfection. You just, like, right. remake bad movies and make them good. You can't fix a perfect movie. But it's not that. I am instead going with the very recent Wrinkle in Time adaptation. <laughs> Aww. Because that book was incredibly dear to my heart. That's mm-hmm. There are very few books in my childhood that impacted me the way the Wrinkle in Time series did. Mm-hmm. And the movie was... What's the, what's the phrase? All sizzle, no steak? Yep. Pure CGI nonsense with no soul at all. It was an incredible bummer. The only thing worth noting in that movie is the girl who played Meg was doing yeah. yeoman's work. She was yeah. crushing mm-hmm. it. Yes. But the script and everything else about the movie was letting her down. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Because she was amazing. Yeah. She was really great. But boy, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so Wasn't... bad, right? Yeah, not good. Although it looks better than, like, the Canadian version from 20 years ago. That is true. (laughs) Yeah. That's number one. Let's go, Meg. What is star number two of the week? Okay, and that's best. Uh, Whatever order you want to do it in, honestly. I'm going to forget by the time I edit. (laughs) I'll I'll do it in best. That's fine. Um, Which was hard because there are a lot of good ones. But I finally, I settled on Stand By Me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, based on the see that Stephen King, Stephen King novella, The Body, mm-hmm. um, 1982. It's, it. I mean, it was nominated for Academy Awards. It is just great. It's four boys who 
take a walk to find a dead body. Like, it's not a flashy film. There's not a lot of special effects. Yeah. There's not, you know, uh, it's there's not high drama really too much, but it's just really good. <laughs> it, that's, boy, I never would have thought of that, and I'm envious of that pick. That's a very mm-hmm. good pick. Also, mm-hmm. Rob Reiner directed. Rob Reiner directed, and the cast list is, I mean, it's Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Trash Boy, who I love, uh, <laughs> Jerry O'Connell in his, like, first thing ever. Wow. Yeah, oh Kiefer God. Sutherland as a kid, mm-hmm. as a teen, like, like pre-Lost Boy Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. Like, yeah. Amazing cast, like, tight script. John Cusack um, was in it as well, right? Wasn't he? John Cusack was in it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was one of the, one of the big brothers. Yeah, I mean, like, it is an amazing, uh, piece of american film mm-hmm. and it shouldn't resonate with me because i was not a young boy in the 1950s but it i think it resonates with childhood in a way mm-hmm. it is not for kids there's a lot of language Whoa, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you watch this as an adult but it is just yeah real 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 solid version that's an excellent choice yeah huh. <laughs> highly recommended uh my uh my least favorite Book to film adaptation again, hard choice because there are a lot of them. My my runner up was the get well, I guess the get smart was a movie to movie adaptation anyway. Okay, right, but but I I have to go with the Seeker, which Ooh. was the two thousand and seven adaptation from The Dark Is Rising. That's the Richard uh, and Kaylin novels. Uh, no, that is the Susan Cooper novels. Oh, what am I thinking of? Wasn't the Seeker also the name of the like the Wizard's first well, rule adaptation? That was yeah. Legend of the Seeker. Legend, Legend of the Seeker. And that was a television show. Yes. Right. Well, yeah, but that yes. counts. We, we stipulated page Oh, yeah, screen. yeah. Also oh, not, a, okay. not a... Well, I don't like any of them, but... Um. <laughs> Worth noting, I think, made by the same production company as made Hercules and Xena, the shows that we talk about on the other podcast. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, that does make sense. <laughs> no, the, the Darkest Rising sequence by Susan Cooper was in- incredibly, incredibly formative for me as a kid. Um just it's got it's got arthurian legend Mm -hmm. and it's got welsh in it and epic poems and like there's a a bunch of woobies and like it's just and it's it's oh i recognize the cover i have searched for this i don't think i've read these but i recognize oh mark you'd like them the (laughs) the the horse with the rider with his arm up in the air yep i remember that cover and the kid on the on the cowering on the front yep yeah um, they, I've re I have reread them numerous times. And so I was very worried when they said they were going to make a movie out of it. Justifiably, it's <laughs> terrible. Um, did it live up to your expectations? It, <laughs> I think it actually surpassed my expectations for how bad it was going to be. The Wikipedia a- actually says the film adaptation drew strong negative reaction from fans of the book series for its disregard of the source material. <laughs> yeah. Which is true. There, I mean, he's American and that's stupid. He's supposed to be British. He doesn't have enough siblings. Like, just the whole thing is wrong. <laughs> the visual is really dumb. There's That's the one that has the the most epic bouncy ball scene i don't know oh yes if you remember I, that oh because, i remember that scene very well <laughs> where like it's supposed to be like the some like evil force is is welling up in town and like a like a vending machine of bouncy balls breaks and they bounce down the stairs in the most dramatic it's just it's ridiculous yeah, okay. there's a long lingering shot on those bouncy, bouncy balls, balls and it's down which is dumb because like okay christopher eccleston is in it mm-hmm. as as the writer which if this were a, a a good adaptation, like a, a faithful adaptation, mm-hmm. he would still be an amazing writer. Oh, yeah, he'd writer. be a great choice. I mean, yeah. he'd be great. Ian McShane is in it um, as wow. Merriman Lion, which would also be a great, mm-hmm. right? That would yeah. also be great. I mean, 
But they just, they just boffed it so badly. <laughs> so bad. Oh, I'm sorry to be thinking about it again. You should read those books, though, Mark. They I are... always, in my head, yeah. I mesh them up with books I have read, which was the Pridane Chronicles. Oh, I don't yeah, know yeah, why yeah. they yes. occupy a similar yeah. space in my head, but they do. Man, that's also a runner-up. Man, <laughs> maybe that's my next runner-up, the Black Cauldron. Yeah. The Disney Black Cauldron, because freaking yeah. Fluter Flam is not like an 85-year-old dumpy dude. <laughs> right? What is that all about? He is like like thirty in his 30s, and he's awesome, and I just will never forgive them for that. Mm-hmm. Never forgive them for Fluter. Justice for Fluter Flam. <laughs> I think I hear about this about once a week. <laughs> strongly for how badly they messed him up. <laughs> well, on that note, Lucas, what is star number three? All right, so uh, I chose for the best. Uh, I decided Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Mm, interesting. Uh, yeah, though, for me, I, I guess my experience of Harry Potter is a bit tainted, perhaps, in the way that I consumed it. Sorry. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, and I'm going to blame my wife for that. Because my first exposure to Harry Potter was Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets movie. Oh, wow. That's a terrible right. entry point. Mm-hmm. Right. So we were. I was going with my now wife and her sister. We were going to go see this movie. So they gave me just this rundown of the Harry <laughs> Potter universe in the car on the way to the theater. Um, right. So I, I saw the second movie first. Then I saw the first movie second. Uh, and then I think, I think I saw the third movie before I read any of the books. Um, but when I went and finally read the books, I, I found the first three, um, and I think that the adaptation was so true to the book mm-hmm. that I felt like I wasn't learning anything mm-hmm. from reading the books till I got to the fourth one where I hadn't seen the movie yet. Okay. So, so it, at the very least, it's a sign of a true adaptation, uh, and I really enjoyed the movies, mm-hmm. and then I, I think they did a great job, especially the early movies, better than the later ones. Uh, capturing the the feel of the characters and also building the world and getting you kind of emotionally invested in it. Uh, I think it worked for me. Uh, I agree. And and honestly, Harry Potter, uh, which any other discussion of the literature and the author aside, (laughs) Harry Potter does, it is one of those rare cases, you're right, where the filmography, where the translation from page to screen somehow makes it more imaginative and that's usually not mm-hmm. at all the case because mm-hmm. your your brain can imagine better things than any movie can and mm-hmm. so no matter what they bring to life it's not it's not going to match what you saw in your head while you were reading to yourself but harry potter is one of those rare ones where it really does it makes the world feel deeper mm-hmm. and livelier and yeah the worst for me uh, was Ender's Game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This one, I did read the book first, thanks to you, Mark, because you gave it to me as a Christmas gift. Yeah, good uh, for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a good choice. I enjoyed it. I have I, given I read, that book to many the other people. Ones too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm happy to have been one of them. Uh, but to be I fair, most me, of them not intentionally. I have lent that book and not had it returned many times. <laughs> I have actually intentionally oh. given it only a few times. Right. I Sorry might about owe that, you a Mark. copy of Ender's Game. <laughs> I don't usually gift wrap it when I when I expect it to come back. <laughs> uh, anyway, but but for me the the big problem with the adaptation was that as I was watching it, I was very thankful I had read the that I had read the book. Mm. 
or it would have made no sense at yeah. all. I would have had no clue what was happening mm-hmm. That's if a I had not read the book. Yeah. Brian, what is star number four? So star number four, and uh, because of some of the restrictions we placed around this, you know, it had to be something that you have both read mm. and also seen. And uh, a quick check is there are things that I have read and there are things that I have seen, but not <laughs> nearly as many of those. Th- like somehow I have missed at, for instance, I've never seen Ender's Game. I've read mm. it haven't seen it and there are a bunch of things that i've seen the movie i've never read the book but one case where that is not true is i think it was very well adapted is the original uh lord of the rings trilogy yeah. uh, and when i say original i do mean the peter jackson yeah. uh, not the animated unfinished one <laughs> right 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 yes i don't know why i threw the word original in there but um and i i think it's amazing on a number of fronts mm-hmm. uh, one of which is i had not read anything by tolkien when 2001 started and I read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings before that first movie came out, right. which is sort of like par for course. When I know that there is going to be a something big adaptation that I want to see, I will then be uh, I will then go sit and read all of yeah. the material. You literally just did this with The Witcher. We discussed it on our other podcast. <laughs> right. Yes. And I I think it's fantastic because it. It captures, I think it captures a lot of places the soul of what it is trying to be. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, heck, at this point, you know, you break out those extended editions and there's no going back to a theatrical cut. I just want to spend 12 hours here. Yeah. Uh, which which I did uh, a few months back. And let me tell you, revisiting those movies, you know, some 20 years later, they are mm-hmm. still great. And uh, I will say that, for my money, the greatest scene in cinema still uh, for, you know, when the good guys show up. Like, Avengers Endgame has this at mm-hmm. the end where, you know, all of the Avengers show up. That is still seconds to the Rohirrim showing up at yeah. Minas mm-hmm. That is still, yeah, sure. for my money, mm-hmm. the most beautifully realized uh, sequence Mm-hmm. in in filmmaking i just love it so much that's, it, and that's a good call and you're right it doesn't have room for everything but it captures the soul of the work very well yes and uh while i'm sure some will disagree with me like look tom bombadil was not going to work in those movies the scouring <laughs> of the shire was not going to work in those movies those yeah. are things they still exist in the books you can read about them i think for the cinematic view that they were trying to put together and sort of the through line they were trying to put together in those movies. I think though the inclusion of those elements would have made the movies themselves less good, even if more accurate. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, yep. speaking of knowing what to adapt and what not to adapt my worst, uh, because this is another series that I read the books before I watched the movie, knowing I was in for disappointment. Guys, the Dark Tower movie was, Mm -hmm. oh, just, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's made worse because I think Idris Elba was fantastic. Such a good Roland. Such a good Roland. that's what makes it worse is everything around him is kind of garbage. Much like we were saying with Meg in Wrinkle in Time. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. adaptation is garbage. I actually don't particularly like Matthew McConaughey in this movie. I just like if you have read the books, there is some like, hey, we quasi almost adapted this thing, but we we didn't, and we're also going to basically say like, no, this is ah, uh, this is the next time through the the or whatever, like right. Here is here is the definitive ending to how that story ends, instead of just giving us a straight-up adaptation of The Gunslinger. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's all very true. It's all, it's all bad. Like, all of the choices they made and what they were doing, bad. Really, I think part of it is wasting an excellent Idris Elba as yeah. Roland on a garbage, garbage, garbage movie. And I know you just finished Star 4, Brian. We're going to go into Star 5, and since we're starting with the worst this time, it seems thematically appropriate to ask you if you would share. So what we did for Star 5, before we turned on the mics, is we agreed on one as a group, a a book property that we all loved and hated the adaptations of. So Brian, given your Star 4, would you like to share Star 5's worst film adaptation? So, remember when I said everything was captured properly in the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Like, they really understood the soul of the thing. I do remember mm-hmm. that. And do you remember how I was effusive with praise and labeled one of the scenes in that trilogy as the best of all time? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what would happen if you, instead of trying to do three books in 12 hours, you tried to do one book in, like... nine ten hours and then completely screwed up everything about the source material and uh by the time you hit the third movie it is um the soul has been sucked out of it completely and is a terrible husk uh which no one should ever have to revisit guys uh our our group choice for worst adaptation is the hobbit series of films (laughs) yeah Oh. You know, again, though, Martin Freeman, perfect Bilbo. I I think the casting is fantastic yep. the, across the, the board. The dwarves, yeah. Um, Richard mm-hmm. Armitage, fantastic. I just, yep. mm-hmm. Again, these are just more things that go like, oh, no, we had we had parts that were good. We had all this stuff that could, could work, and we mm-hmm. decided to light it all on fire. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Just... Uh, everything about this adaptation. I will say the first one is at least still somewhat enjoyable to watch, if for no other reason than singing dwarves. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. uh, but like everything they kind of mismanage. There's no reason that this story should have taken three films. No. The <laughs> it was first... the smallest of all the books. Yep. Yeah. The first yeah, it was five to ten minutes of the third film is clearly the last five to ten minutes of the second film that they inexplicably chop from that one and put (laughs) over there. Like, if you watch them back to back to back, because let me tell you, when I was talking about watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, a few months ago, before I did that, I sat down and watched all of the Hobbit movies because I had never seen the third one mm. because I had sort of bailed at that point. And I was correct when I hadn't seen them. Yeah. <laughs> so, someone else add more hate to this movie that isn't just me. The love triangle. 
just yeah. not even why 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 why, why are Ophelia and Killy not dying defending yep. their fallen king? Why have yep. we changed all of that? I mean, at least, you know, one of them gets to tie into the love triangle, I guess, and you know, he's protecting Toriel, but the other mm-hmm. one, he just goes out like a punk. Yeah, like the whole thing about the dwarves is how tight they stuck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The whole, like that's the whole thing and then you've got them not doing that. No. And it just rooting mm. just it's it's terrible. Can let me let me switch gears with this if you're okay, Brian. Yep. And I'll tag Meg since you picked a mm. Rob Reiner movie earlier. Sure. Would you like to cap us off with our group agreed number one adaptation? Absolutely. And I think there's no debate, and I think many people would agree with us that the Princess Bride It's is the Princess perfect. Bride. Perfect. It's so good. And here's did you guys see recently a bunch of uh quarantine celebrities did like a fan homage to it yes and i want to watch it but it's on stupid quibi (laughs) yeah so i've watched bits of it on youtube and because it's very intentionally not taking itself seriously Mm -hmm. it comes off very sincerely as a love letter to this property it's really fun some land better than others let me tell you dave batista as fezzik it sings Hmm. (laughs) and weirdly Patton Oswalt as Vanzini. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the original was just, it is a timeless classic of American cinema. It's one of the best films ever made. It's, yeah, it's, everyone loves it. It's, it's beautiful. It's quotable. It's funny. It's so funny. It is so it's funny. so funny. <laughs> it is kind of relentlessly funny. It just doesn't mm-hmm. let up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think a true testament to how great the film is, is it's like the only cast of people that Mandy Patinkin gets along with. <laughs> That's a good point. Mandy Patinkin speaks fondly of his time on that film set. Uh, have you, I, well, Mark, I know I've heard you talk, I know that you have heard Mandy Patinkin talk about how killing the Count was so emotional for him. Yeah. Have you heard that because his dad had died? Yep. Of and cancer, he just channeled like, all that energy into it. Yeah, and that line, like, yeah, I want my father. I'm like, oh, yeah. oh. I, <laughs> so I mean, good. it, it's, it's funny because that movie has some of the best examples of, like, a lot of tropes. Like, yep. it's just all time mm-hmm. best. Like, look, you are not going to find a better quest for revenge than yep. Inigo Montoya. You just aren't. Yep. It's and. <laughs> He also, Manny Patinkin, talks about how he likes to film things and forget them. That's his process. Like, he sure. he mm-hmm. does not like living in the past. He doesn't like taking credit for work previously done. He's, he's just, he's a shark. He's always moving. But he says a thing that still touches his heart is when children recognize him mm. from that movie. He says when mm-hmm. kids recognize him as Inigo Montoya, it is still the most meaningful thing to him out of his career. All right, this was a lot of fun, guys. I am going to have to figure out some way to cut it down by at least 10 minutes but thank you for joining us it was a real blast and brian i guess you and i are now gonna i mean in keeping with the kayfabe of this show we're gonna turn this off and go watch spider-man episode 12 yes i wonder what that episode 12 will be like (laughs) and we'll be back to talk to you about that uh right after this and we're back brian would you like to tell me 
how, 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 every time we do this show, it gets weird. But yep. tell me, Brian, how did you find this episode? This very weird episode. I found it. I found it a confused mess of an episode, to be sure, because I don't know why anything in this episode happened. Every time I think we've reached peak nonsense, we get out a gilded shovel and dig yet deeper. Like, Spider-Man is going to tertiarily fight the mob syndicate this episode? Yeah. Hang on, I wrote down a quote, and we'll get there... Like, this is going to make sense to some degree. <laughs> I don't know. Because we're going to get there it, in this episode. But I'm just going to read you. So this is a real thing that was just said in the middle of an episode of Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. While Monaco was indulging in her dreams with Togo, two men from a Middle Eastern crime syndicate arrive in Japan. Yep. I, uh, that was certainly a thing that happened. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't. Either. I don't know why Middle Eastern Crime Syndicate, uh, staffed by Japanese persons, is. Yep. Um, I don't know why that's a. Sp- I mean, you know, Spider Man used to fight the Kingpin a lot. I guess it's a Spider Man problem. That's true. That's true. I do like that we had to bring in a foreign crime syndicate. Right. It couldn't have been the Yakuza. Right. Or you know, any number like. Whatever. It's fine. We'll get there. I'm way ahead. I'm way ahead. Let's pull back for just a minute because we're going to open this episode at Interpol. Uh, Interpol with an E on the end. Yes. Knock off Interpol. I I mean, I'm not wrong. Like, Interpol, that doesn't have an E. They wouldn't put an E on it in other countries. It's that E shouldn't be there. Correct. I, I don't think so, no. But it is interesting to me that Interpol has somehow become just a regular part of Spider-Man. Yeah, I... It's just a thing now. Interpol is going to be a recurring theme for Spider-Man. I mean, it, it's... One, I always forget that Interpol is actually a real organization. Right, yeah. Because it's the go-to fake organization that everyone uses. Like, oh, if we have to go international, we just declare they're part of Interpol, and that solves any jurisdictional issues. (laughs) So we're at Interpol, and we're going to see a break-in. Why? Unsure. But there are a couple of... Sneaky looking fellas who are. I'm not going to say it's comical. Because I think they're trying to play it serious. But nonetheless, they are making a very silly attempt at breaking into Interpol. Yes. Trying While to the steal... Amazonist observes from a distance. Yeah, they're trying to steal what is only referred to as like an infrared device. Oh, that's right. Yep. Like like a supermarket scanner or like this is this is the first of the times that the episode will introduce a plot concept and then think better of it later. Yeah. It's never real clear exactly what they need this thing for or why, but they fail to break in. They set off uh like a heat sensor, I believe is what we're told. Yep. 
And somehow setting off that sensor turns them back into ninders. Uh, no, what turns them back into ninders is setting off the sensor alerts a bunch of Interpol agents who right. all pile into the hallway and gun them down. Oh, that's right. I forgot they got shot. Yeah. And our friend Yuzo, the Interpol agent, recognizes them because he's been working with Spider-Man tracking down Iron Cross Army. Right. So, for some reason, the Iron Cross Army is trying to break into Interpol. Yeah, they need that infrared tech, man. Right. Boy, if only that was really going to be the plot of this episode. (laughs) It seems initially, and that's what I thought, like, oh, all right, cool. We're getting a sort of, a sort of police espionage film, right? (laughs) No. Not even close. So, we cut from the failed break in to Interpol back to Iron Cross headquarters where Professor Monster is angry, but sort of exasperated dad energy angry. Yeah. I mean, he seems to be upset that, ah, stupid heat seeking lenses or whatever, whatever it was, stupid sensors, sensors are dumb. How dare they use sensors? Right, like, ah, come on, they got caught by heat sensors? What's that nonsense? And that's sort of where we leave it for the moment. I thought initially, like, okay, this is where we're going to explain the bad guy plan, because this is what happens. Right. Professor Monster paces around the room, yells at the Amazonists, and they declare what the plan of the week is going to be, such as inject a spider with fish venom. Right. Or let's... Uh, murder a small town rock group and replace them and play our evil dance music. Right. One of my personal favorite. That still may be the best villain scheme in this show. And I thought we were at that point, because that's usually how this goes. There's a cold open that doesn't make a lot of sense. And then Professor Monster explains to us an evil plan. Yep. Nope. We're just going to cut away to a photo shoot. Right. Where I think... So, Hitomi, Spider-Man's girlfriend, is there. Yep. And Takoya apparently is employed, like, holding lights or something. Because I think we finally come to the place where we can all acknowledge that that motocross career is not taking off. Yeah, yeah. There's apparently not money in motocross. And... His girlfriend, who is a competent working professional who is clearly successful in her field, yeah, has thrown him a bone by getting him a gig as not even like the lighting guy, but literally the guy who holds her flashbulb while she does her camera work. Sequoia's real lucky it's the 1970s and this is still necessary. <laughs> yeah. So... Hitomi is at, it turns out, a very high-end photo shoot, and she appears to be potentially the only camera person there. Yeah, I mean, she's living the dream. So she is working for Togo, who is a high-profile fashion designer in Tokyo. Yes, who seems like he's going to be very important. It it sure does seem like he's going to be very important. There's a lot of people in this episode who seem like they're going to be very important. (laughs) So Togo is currently doing like a ladies activewear shoot. And Hitomi's there taking pictures. And as the shoot's kind of winding down, 
a sort of dejected looking woman comes walking up the stairwell, approaches Hitomi and Takoya, and asks if she can please see the designer, which is his name's Togo, but he's referred to as the designer throughout most of this episode. Right. I would have thought the response would be, I don't know. We don't work for him. Right. It is not our job to be security. Yeah. But um, no, no one sees the designer during the shoot. And while like the girl looks sad, that at least, okay, that, that makes sense. Like, look, the job isn't done. Like he's, he's real busy. He doesn't have time to meet fans right now. Like, that and credit that, to Hitomi, yeah. that's a pretty gentle put down, right? Yeah. Like, nah, it's not that he doesn't want to meet you. It's just he's working. Right. We can't let fans in while he's at work. Right. And had there been a whole, like, five minutes of shoot and not immediately smash cut to 12 seconds after the shoot is over, that might have so, landed a little better. <laughs> someone overwrote the script, right? Because there's smash cuts all over this episode where time jumps inexplicably. Yeah, because we jump immediately to the shoot is over and this man is walking out of the building. Also, somehow he's walking out of ahead of Takoya and Hitomi. Yep. Who definitely Even though they before. were in the hallway at the time. Whatever. It, none of it makes sense. And that's going to happen frequently in this episode. There's yes. going to be very hard cuts where time jumps quickly and people are in locations where they shouldn't be. Right. The location that the designer is going to is in his car with his top model, which I I can't tell. Is the episode trying to establish an undercurrent of this is a creepy designer guy who just, you know, dates his top model and that's that's how it works? Or is he even here's trying? My, is he here's even, my take on that, because I had that mm, same question, Brian. Yeah. And I think what's happening is we are watching this through the eyes of grown men in the year 2020. Right. So when we see a high-profile fashion designer with a history of dating whoever his prettiest model currently is, our brains immediately flag that and say, oh, that's gross, because, hey, that's gross. Right, right, right. In the 1970s, while it was still just as gross... It was just like, well, yeah, he's a rich and powerful man. Of course he's going to sleep with the pretty women. Yeah. And everyone just kind of accepts that as though it is a perfectly fine fact of life. Yes. Just as he uh, walks, like he takes the flowers from sad fan, kind of throws them away and like, hey, great. Um, we we don't need to talk now. Please go away. Yeah. And then she is off. waiting for him at the car because she couldn't get in. She gives him flowers and asks if, he, if they can talk. He takes the flowers and says, no, we cannot talk. And he drives away. I would like to point out at this moment, number one, that the entire conceit of, as we were just talking about, hey, I'm going to date whoever the prettiest woman is because I can because I'm powerful. Super gross. It's going to continue to be super gross. We're probably not going to mention it every time because we just spend the whole episode talking about that. I mean, we wouldn't spend the whole episode because this episode is definitely going to veer away from all of this very quickly. Right. Well, fair enough. But also, this woman who is waiting for him, the conceit, I think, of the episode is she is not the prettiest woman and she needs to be the prettiest woman so he will notice her. We're gonna, that's what we're going to talk about in the next little chunk. 
She gives him the flowers. He does not care. He drives off in his fancy car with his number one model. And the what at this point we think is just a sad, dejected fan. Yep. Is kind of lingering around unsure of what to do. Until she is approached by the Amazonist in plainclothes. Who apparently knows her whole life story. Yeah, the Amazonist knows everything that this woman's reasons been through. Reasons that turns I do out, not understand. Is not a, like a desperate fan, but I believe a discarded lover. Yeah, I think she used to be top model. I think she that's... used to be the top model. Yeah. Yep. And the Amazonist says, hey, so I know your whole life story. That used to be you on the arm of Togo in the fancy sports car. Until he found a younger, prettier woman. So, you know what? I know what you should do about it. What she should say is, forget about him. He's the worst man ever, and you're amazing. Go live your life and find yourself a better partner. But instead, what she says is, make yourself even prettier so he can't turn you down. Yeah, it's and to be fair, to be fair, the Amazonist is a villain. She's a villain. Yeah. And she's preying on the insecurities of this woman. Granted, yes. Gross. But still, it is hard to ignore that the message of this show is, hey, girls, get prettier so the boys will see you. Yeah, it's uh, it's very much 1970s. It is. It's so bad. It's so bad. So. She's going to go with the Amazonist because the Amazonist says basically like, I've got a program. It's me. Every American beauty product company in the world, or in America, I suppose, I know how to make you prettier so the boys will notice, because that's what cosmetic companies do. Yes. And the lady goes with the Amazonist. Meanwhile, Takoya is being informed that he has to come along to another photo shoot. Hitomi has another gig with Togo. He's going to go... put on a show for his latest swimwear line and Takoya's got to go be the lighting guy for that too. And this is the one moment where I will point out that this show very, very briefly veers away from its own grossness because we're, we talked a lot about how this show badly leans into some messages about valuing women based on their beauty. Mm hmm. And for just a minute, Takoya, Takoya says, what? I don't want to go look at a bunch of ladies in their bathing suits. That's dumb. I'm going to go drive my dirt bike. Right. Uh, it is also pointed out by Hitomi that, I mean, yeah, but like you're employed right now. Right. And so they're not going to pay you if you don't actually like come to this photo shoot. And he points out that's not fair because Spider-Man doesn't believe in contract law. <laughs> Right. And it really, I mean, it's because he wants to ride his dirt bike. Right. But it was nice to see our hero being the one voice in this episode that even in this throwaway scene was like, no, I, I do not want to go ogle a bunch of women. That's just not for me. Right. I mean, there's, there's certainly the upside. There's also the, um, the probably more in keeping with his character 
throughout the series, which is he's also not a great boyfriend. So oh, he yeah. was he was real ready to ditch out on this assignment. Yeah, so. he is ready to ditch out on both his job and his girl. That is less good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But I was giving him a sliver of credit because there's not a lot of credit to give this episode anywhere else. No. I mean, not, not currently. We're going to get into some <laughs> real weird stuff in a bit. All right, so let's get back to the Amazonas and this woman whose name, it turns out, is uh, Menaco, mm-hmm. which we only know, I think, because the announcer says it somewhere. She takes her back to Iron Cross headquarters, puts her under, and apparently goes nuts with, I think, what we're supposed to believe is cosmetic surgery. I right? I think, like, it, there was a point where I thought, are we turning her into a Mondasian Cyberman? Yes, um, that definitely seemed to be on the table. Also, if you saw Professor Monster, would you think that he's the best one to perform... Like, cosmetic surgery. Right. No. Ha. Huh. He is a literal monster. It's yeah. right in the name. Yeah. I mean, he is a professor, True. but... But not a professor of cosmetology. No. No. Probably physics. So, what they're doing is turning her into Captain America, basically. They're making her a superhuman. Yes. But How? Be- don't know. Don't ask questions. Well, but before she gets to be a normal superhuman, she has to first survive the mummy's curse. Yeah. When she wakes up, she's just wrapped up like the mummy. Yeah. And she's going to walk around town like the mummy. For all of you uh, hoarding toilet paper, this is apparently what people are doing with it. Yep. It's real goofy. So she wakes up. She's wrapped up like the mummy. And the Amazonist says, all right. Hey, glad you're awake. Guess what? You're going to go kill Yutaka, who is the current top model. And Monaco says, I am? I, I don't... Killing's not my thing. Is that what I'm going to do? And the Amazonist says, yes, because you are now remote controlled and I have the controller. That I will use sparingly, except in specific orders to kill people. It's very weird, because there's going to come a point later where Minako is actively disobeying the Amazonist, who is holding a physical remote control and not using it. it whatever. Yeah, uh, because we're veering into a completely different plot. Like, do you remember the thing about the infrared and the... Stealing from Interpol. Forget that right, right now. Yep, now, yep. now this is about uh, killing Japan's next top model. It sure is. And she does. She yep. just goes and chucks her off a roof. Yep. I, uh... It's one, real old. One thing we have to remember about this show. This show has a very high body count for a children's program. Yeah. That ain't letting up, my brother. Nope. <laughs> she chucks this top model off a roof. And then immediately takes her place. Right. I mean, even the announcer says, nah, she has her place now due to the untimely, uh, unusual, uninvestigated death of Top Model right. X. Yeah. So, come on, announcer. You have you have vision. You know what happened. Yep. Yep. So Yutaka is dead. And minico just i guess walks up to togo and is like hey so i heard that you lost your girlfriend and number one model but hey look i've got a facelift so how about this girl like 
One thing and that, that works. They're just driving speedboats yeah. together. Ah, oh, driving speedboats together. One <laughs> That's thing what you do when you're in love, Brian. Apparently, speedboats. Speed One thing that baffles me completely is I can't figure if he at any point remembers that he knew her to the extent that I'm not clear that she imagined the relationship in the first place and was never a model in the first place. I actually wrote that in my notes. The only way that this makes sense to me is if Monaco is a stalker who had an imagined relationship with this man. Yeah, because after, like, speedboat love... Does he? Does the designer even appear in the rest of the episode, or do we just chuck that? Plot? I don't think he does much. Yeah. I... So, what's going to happen is, Monaco takes the number one model spot, mm-hmm. steps into it literally the next day, I guess, or the next week, because she is at the aforementioned swimwear photo shoot. Right. Apparently, this is the same day every week Takoya wants to wear the same shirt he was wearing last week, but... Takoya's just cosplaying as Where's Waldo in this episode. (laughs) It kind of works for him. Yeah. I like the idea that he's got, you know, just like three shirts that he cycles through like any early 20s dude. I mean, maybe this is just his work clothes for when he goes to work. That's why so, we've never seen him wear them till today. There's a quick moment at this photo shoot, and I'm not going to dwell on it, but it has to be mentioned, where we take a break from watching a Spider-Man episode and very briefly watch part of a Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> not the camera's just going to pan over a whole bunch of butts. Yes, not the part where there's fast cars, the part where there's butts. Yep, just butts. Just There's just butts everywhere for a minute. And again, it's the 70s, I know, but it is very, very exploitative feeling, right? Like, hey, we're doing a photo shoot thing. What if we made a bunch of pretty ladies wear swimsuits and then just slow panned across all of them waist tight from behind? Yeah, I'll be honest, I, at this point, thought the episode was going to turn into the standard... Um, beach episode. Right, yep. And technically, I think we had half of one of those earlier. <laughs> right. But it, it doesn't. seem like we were getting that, but it didn't. Nope. We're just, we're at a swimwear photo shoot on the beach, I guess, because then it does indeed turn into speedboat love time. It's a good speedboat. And this is, while we're on, it is a cool speedboat. And while the camera is following them on the speedboat, this is when the announcer says, two men from a Middle East crime syndicate arrive in Japan. Like, what? 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 what movie are we in now? Wait, what? So, wait, did the infrared stuff not matter? <laughs> why? What about I mean, the top model contest we were watching? I mean, why? It, it doesn't seem like we're doing anything with this designer. Why did we create this woman specifically into... A crazed assassin? Like, she doesn't no, work I... at Interpol. No. She's, she's just a model. She sure is. No idea what... In, uh, I mean, I think just the Amazonist was bored and was like, well, I need someone to remote control. I'm just going to 
walk out into Tokyo and wait for the first sad looking person I see. I mean, that's the only thing that makes sense, because at first I thought, okay, well, is the designer secretly an agent for Interpol? And the answer is no. The designer has nothing to do with Interpol. The designer from this point forward has nothing to do with the plot. Yeah, no. We just we just needed a reason to chuck a poor model off of a roof. Yeah, because the next thing that's going to happen is Takoya is going to go home where his sister is going to patronizingly feed him beef stew for finally bringing home a paycheck. Right. Which at that moment, I actually thought, wait a minute. Does this really just establish Takoya as even more of a regular Peter Parker analog than we had previously <laughs> led to believe? Because, look, Spider-Man's always broke. I mean, not sure. as much in recent years where they gave him a job that wasn't photographer in the 2020s. But, right. like, part of Spider-Man is being broke just, like, all the time. It's true. And this Peter Parker yeah. does not earn money from bringing pictures of Spider-Man, though. No. I imagine some J. Jonah Jameson just yelling, bring me pictures of some butts. <laughs> That's uh, how he earns his cash, I guess. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. He finally brought him a paycheck. Right. So his sister's like, look, all right, finally, I have made your favorite meal for you because you've finally given up on your insane motocross dream. Yeah, at least this week. This, I just yeah. I just realized, like, no, I mean, Hitomi's the one with the photography job. She's the she's the reporter. Oh, yeah. Which, She's doing the real work. Right. Which He's it holding would take the us stick. so long to do that with the PlayStation 4 Spider-Man game with Mary Jane. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. Hitomi was way ahead of the curve. Yeah. That is one thing this show has given us, I would say. In, in as much as we make fun of this show for being filmed in the 70s, for being obviously regressive in some notable ways, for being a product of its time. Hatomi is in 1970, whatever, mm-hmm. leagues ahead of anything that Mary Jane's going to be doing for a while. She has a lot more agency. She's more valuable as a character beyond just being a love interest. She clearly brings down more ducats than Takoya ever did. Right. Yeah. She is, in a lot of ways, a real standout character for this show. Isn't Takoya's sister a scientist as well? She is, yeah. She's, like, working with her dad's old team. Yeah, I mean, somebody's got to pay for this food. (laughs) Right, right. So Takoya sadly does not even get to eat his favorite beef stew because the Interpol radio in his bedroom goes off. (laughs) Uh... Spider-Man's being summoned to Interpol, where his friend Yuzo is waiting for him. Right. And Yuzo says... Spider-Man, I would like you to meet my friend and co-worker, whose name I did not write down, and I don't think Yuzo wrote down either. (laughs) This guy is a nothing burger. Right. We just got to introduce somebody else from Interpol. Right. So we can talk about the the evil syndicate ways. Yeah. This guy is is Interpol's Middle Eastern crime syndicate expert and he's in fact been building basically a case book about the various crime syndicates of the middle east they refer to it as the blacklist yeah i'm i'm real unclear what this list is supposed to be is it just supposed to be like all the evidence interpol has on these guys or is it 
Is it supposed it to be literally like literally is explained to just be like a list of names, but it has to be right. It has to be an evidence book or else why would they care? Right. Mostly because I'm sure you Middle Eastern crime syndicate knows who works for you. Right. I mean, yeah. maybe maybe they just keep real bad records and like, look, we need a copy. We know Interpol's during the legwork on this. Let's just get some of their Excel spreadsheets and start from there. Yeah. Yep. But no, this is going to be a big deal. He does show us two pictures of supposed Middle Eastern crime lords Gil mm-hmm. and his hitman Ban. Okay. Gil is nothing. Ban has a real good look. I was disappointed that Ban was not in this episode more because they pulled that picture up. and I was like, oh, man, Ban looks awesome. I mean, I'm disappointed that there was not a much larger, possibly sensical Middle Eastern crime angle. Right. Yeah. What we learn pretty much immediately is the Middle Eastern crime syndicate. Menno, I think is his name, has a friendly relationship with the Iron Cross Army. You remember the invading alien race set on the wholesale destruction of Earth? Right. Apparently crime syndicates are working with them. Yeah, they're just pals with a Middle Eastern crime syndicate. And so the Iron Cross Army is here to help them get that list back. Why? Who Who knows? Why does the Iron Cross Army care at all? What? They're here to destroy Earth. What happened to the infrared detectors or whatever? Right. Yep. I don't why, know. Why are we trying to steal the knock list from Mission Impossible? I, I do not understand why Iron Cross is mucking around helping some two-bit crime syndicate. Also, why did we involve this poor girl who chucked a model off of a building? Yeah, yeah so... None of these is... plot threads intersect. <laughs> that is about where we're going next. So Spider-Man says, I'll investigate. I'll figure out what's going on. And he does somehow. I presume it must be his spidey senses. I don't, I don't, I don't know how this happened. He just walks into a room where those guys are drinking and chatting to the Amazonists. He's like, don't worry, I'll figure it out. Smash cut. I think like he's riding on the back of a car briefly. And we just smash cut to him standing outside their room, listening to them talk about their plan. Sure. All right. Whatever. Spider-Man's going to hang out on the back of a car for a bit. Boy, does that is that the most absurd shot we've seen? It's real silly. Not, I'm not going to lie. Not real, real. Not silly. just because, like, it's not a truck. Spider-Man's basically on the back of a small, sensible sedan. Yeah, he's like clinging to the bumper of a Studebaker. <laughs> I just. <laughs> it's not only is it absurd and the goofiest looking thing you've ever seen, but it's not even like it's a long shot. It's just, no. hey, do we want two seconds of what should be deemed unfilmable? Yes. Yeah. Yes, we do. Give me back those two seconds to make a slightly more sensical smash cut somewhere. I just. <laughs> All right. So we're now at another photo shoot or something. And the Amazonist is reactivating. Uh, Monaco says, all right, new job, new job for you. I need you to go kill an Interpol agent and retrieve me a blacklist. And Monaco says, no, thank you. I don't want to do that. I would like to not be a serial murderer. 
And I would like to remind you that the Amazoness is holding a literal Monaco remote control in her pocket. Right. On her person. And instead, she blackmails her. Yeah, I just... She's like, well, you better do it or I'll tell everyone about that other murder that you committed. Right. That we apparently were taking photos of. So, So I am confused. Did we only commit that murder so that there would be the blackmail? I I guess we, I we do not understand. Like a mind control device. Why are we wasting time with like establishing some sort of official cover? Why is she not just a weird sleeper right. agent? Why Why did you need her to get close to Togo, the designer? No, who knows? I, who knows? But fine. All right, she's going to go invade interpol i mean maybe the only reason is so spider-man can figure out what's up because he's at the photo shoot right (laughs) yep so first her first move is to just go to a pool where the interpol agent swims every day sure and there's just some weird scenes of people jumping in a pool there's one bit where three guys simultaneously dive into the pool don't know why that's happening why a lot of things are happening in this episode and she kind of corners him in the locker room but spider-man's there just like creeping in the dude's <laughs> locker room he's just up in the corner like it it feels like everyone who was in that locker room either didn't notice spider-man or this is just like yeah spider-man's here just just, <laughs> just ignore leave him. him alone he thinks he's hiding yeah just nobody spoil this for him yeah he's he's real bad at hiding Because we say he's in the corner of the ceiling, like a spider. It's not like this is a room with, like, arcing Corinthian pillars or, you know, tall, open architecture. These lockers are, like, six feet high. He's barely above their heads. Barely. But, whatever. He's there in time to sort of save the Interpol agent, but... The assassin only makes a real half-hearted attempt at even trying to kill him. Spider-Man literally grabs her wrist, and then we just smash cut to her being gone? Like, how did she escape? Did he just let her go? Like, oh, I see that you tried to commit an assassination. You had probably better not do that again. Now, off with you. Away you go. Yeah, I am I'm not clear. No idea. All. Spider-Man captures her. The scene cuts, and she is talking to the Amazoness. One thing that we did um we did miss during one of the scenes where like she's being told about the assassination or whatever. Oh right, is right. Why why in all of these buildings in Japan is there a small like foot like by an foot access hatch? Yeah, to every like room? an access hatch so Spider Man can watch you write that. your own joke there. It's what? hilarious. Because this is not the first time this happened. Spider-Man just so good. sticks his head down. Nobody sees him. I don't know how that's possible. It's not dark. It's a bright red suit. But, yep, Spider-Man just has access hatches yep. to, like, every building. It's like the mid-2000s ceiling cat meme. Yeah. Yeah. They're just, just like they're sitting there making their evil plans, and his head just pops out of a hole in the ceiling. Like, hey, guys, what's going on down here? Yeah. It, it even moves a little slowly, just like the scene finishes with the discussion and then. Yep. Yep. I just... All right. So she fails to kill him at the pool. The yep. Amazonist says, 
hey, I need you to do this. Listen, if you just take care of this guy, if you can get us the list, that's all we need is this blacklist. Why, I don't know, our friends in a Middle Eastern crime syndicate need it? Is it going to help you take over the world? Definitely not. Is it going to help you kill Spider-Man? Nope. We just, we need it for our friends in the Menno crime syndicate. Like, does the Amazonas have a side hustle going on? Does Professor Monster even know about this? (laughs) So she says, just do that and I will set you free. You can have your freedom. You can finally take that Parisian vacation you've dreamed of. Were they, like, girlfriends before this episode started? I don't know. There are so many unanswered questions about who was responsible for anything in this episode. It was about the Iron Cross Army heisting Interpol. Then it was about Next Top Model. And then it was about an Eastern Crime Syndicate who needs something from Interpol. But that thing isn't the same thing the Iron Cross Army needs. But the Iron Cross Army is in league with the Crime Syndicate. But they're not both trying to get the same thing. Now we're trying to get this knock list. I don't know what's going on. Even the one nice thing about this is she changes into like a black assassination jumpsuit. Yeah. And it's a pretty good look. Yeah. It's a pretty good look. She's going to run like Spider-Man for some dang reason. Look, everybody runs like that in this universe. It's very distracting. There is a scene where she's got a knife and they're facing off with each other and they're just both doing that weird crab shuffle run. Yeah, I just, I don't, (laughs) I, guys, I don't know why we think Spider-Man runs like that. I mean, this Spider-Man does. Frankly, I hope that in the comic book they somehow replicate (laughs) Spider-Man running like that. It is my dream that Takoya shows up in Into the Spider-Verse 2 whenever that film comes. And that he does that ridiculous crab shuffle. I just, it's it's such a ridiculous crab shuffle. We get kind of a uh, smooth funk version of the theme song going on in this fight. Yeah, for a second. So she breaks into Interpol, she steals the list, but it turns out to be a false list. Right. Because Spider-Man knew it was coming. And then I guess he switched it before she even took it out of the safe. I guess. Who knows? There is a quick couple of scenes where like she's kicking down doors and ripping off safes. It's kind of fun. Like it's corny looking, but it's kind of fun. And she takes the list back and she's like, hey, Amazonas, I've got it. Ah, good to see that Ban and Gill are here as well. Oh, no, it's a false list. What's going on? And Spider-Man appears above a building, just doing the dumbest evil laugh you've ever heard. Ha, 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 ha. It's real silly. It's... And and that kicks off our fight scene. And for a minute, the music kicks in, and I'm like, oh, hey, this is not, like, the usual recreation of the theme song. Right. Maybe we're going to have a short fight scene. Right. Nope. We're still going to do the whole song. Don't you worry. Just in a different musical style. And honestly, I'm okay with that. Um, Yeah, it's kind of fun. I I do want to know, because Spider-Man starts driving, at one point we'll start driving after the the crime syndicate. Yeah, the crime bros. I understand that these crime bros, like they're crime bros, but they didn't get a real list. So have they actually committed a crime in this country? Spider-Man, why are you firing a machine gun at them? They haven't, like, I'm not clear that they've committed any crime. I mean, there was certainly intent, but you generally shouldn't meet intent with machine guns. This is my favorite thing about this episode. So there's a very extended knife fight where 
the assassin is trying to kill Spider-Man with a knife. And it lasts several scenes. But eventually, Spider-Man destroys that remote control. Great, fine. And then he's chasing down the crime bros. He's literally clinging to the roof of their car. And eventually, he summons GP7. Right. Great. He, He does throw one of them out. Yep. And this is what I love the most. The most. Spider-Man summons GP7, jumps into it, and makes a very cautious and safe U-turn. Like, oh, got to be careful. Like, really gentle U-turn. And then just opens fire with two machine guns on the streets of Tokyo. Just, just, like, why? Is it because inexplicably Spider-Man drives the GP7 on the left side and this car has the driver on the right? Why? Why is that happening? Why? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. At first, I was like, oh, maybe I've just not noticed that they drive on the other side of the road. And the answer is no. For some reason, this car is on the right. I don't I don't know why. Um, yep, but that's OK, because the bullets don't really bring him in. Eventually, he wrecks and crashes into something. So I guess yep. problem solved, Spider-Man. He, he crashes. The Amazonist orders the retreat. So she and the Ninders fall back. Yeah, that's where the theme song cuts out real short, because it looks like it's going to gear up into another fight, and it's like, nope, we're out. Nope, and it's like, oh, okay, we actually made it out of this episode. Look, the bad guys are running away, the crime syndicate boss has been caught, and somehow the extra did not have a tragic ending. Right. But But then we remember- there's still two minutes left in this episode. We remember what we're watching. Yeah. Because I- (laughs) Yeah, because I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, sometimes these get super dark, but maybe, maybe we're going to be okay. Guess who's racked with guilt? Yeah, which is fair. Okay, she did just commit a murder against her own will. Right. And guess who is at the top of a very, very tall building? Yeah, that Spider-Man's going to run all the way to the top of just in time to watch her throw herself off. Yep. And then he's going to run all the way back to the bottom to watch her land. Yeah. This is the most worthless Spider-Man has ever been. I was going to say, like, Spider-Man, like, this is actually kind of specifically your jam. Okay, there was the one time on the bridge that it didn't work out. Sure. But aside from that, this is kind of what the spider powers are. And she hadn't even jumped yet. Hit her with that web. Yeah. Nope. Or, or, oh no, she's falling off the roof. Jump and swing. Yeah. Do the thing that you do. You swing between buildings. You're on top of a tall building surrounded by other tall buildings. Why are you running back down the stairs? I mean, look, it is. So this is done in the 1970s. So we are many, many years from probably so many iterations of Spider-Man using his webs to do complex things like this. That's a good point. That's a very good point. So, I mean... But yeah, she just dies. She dies. She hits the ground and dies. And it's very sad and very jarring, very sudden. Ah, actually, do we know what date this episode aired? I do know the date this episode aired. It was August 2nd, 78. 78. Okay. So, like, that's only five years after uh, June, July of 1973, which is when Spider-Man failed to save Gwen Stacy in a similar sort of situation. So yeah, good point. 
Maybe we hadn't fully adapted to the whole swing and catch saving. Yeah, we had yet. we had not gotten to the you know web web pull yourself even faster. Uh, yeah, look, Spider Man has gotten much better with his webs in the past forty years. Is is all I'm saying. Yeah, and that's that's it. This children's show once again ends on a grisly death. A grisly death and a to-be-continued, so yep. maybe, like, I can't tell if that means that maybe we'll undo this grisly death. We certainly didn't that time that lady lit herself on fire. Yeah, uh, I don't know. But, you know, maybe, maybe there's hope, or maybe it's just going to be Takoya's <laughs> going to be in a bad mood next episode. Man, yeah, it, huh. it was a weird and tough to follow episode throughout and then just a very difficult ending yeah i'm i'm not even sure i understand how any of this fits together maybe in the follow-up like maybe that fits together i i don't know there's there's the crime syndicate and then there's interpol and then there's the model and none of those things really matter and then there's the blacklist and then there's the infrared scanners or whatever i don't None yeah. of these elements go together. Ultimately, it's a story about a Middle Eastern crime syndicate retrieving a knock list. Yeah. You know Why what? does that have anything to do? What, could that be a fun Spider-Man story? Yeah, sure. Good. As you point out, Spider-Man's great with kind of mafia sort of bad guys. Why does it have anything to do with the Iron Cross army? Who the heck even knows? It's ridiculous. I mean, we didn't even get a Leopardon or, no. or a monster this week. We just, we just got Takoya. Now, Although granted, Spider-Man did change his tagline from Emissary of Hell to Iron Cross Killer. Yeah. It's pretty so, good. Yeah. Pretty good. All right, man. I think that is it. Any closing thoughts? No, I do not understand what we watched this week. I mean, I, yep, yep. So, sometimes I can make I can make something good from it. But wow, this is this is a weird pile of hash here. It's very, very strange. I guess we'll just have to kind of leave it there until we get to episode 13, which I have written down in my notes is called The Skull Group versus The Devilish Hearse. Oh, yeah. That definitely makes it sound like it connects (laughs) to this episode. Sure. But until then, I will remind you that you can find this show and all of the other good retrograde orbit radio podcasts on www.retrogradeorbitradio.com. Who knows by the time you listen to this, who knows what other podcasts we may have chosen to launch between now and then. Who knows? You can find this program on Twitter at Super Sentai Bros. You can find me on Twitter at RO Radio. You can find Brian on Twitter at Mount Olympus Pod. As always, we ask if you like this program. Look us up on whatever your pod listening program of choice is. Leave us a rating. Leave us a comment. Whatever you can do to indicate that you enjoyed this show. That's always helpful for Matt and Dave. And check out next week when Matt and Dave will be back. Until then, this is Mark. This is Brian. And we will see you next time for the greatest show on Earth. Spider-Man. Spider-Man.